This is a podcast from SPH Radio. I'm Loretta Lopez, and this is True Crime SG. And with me today is Mr. Tan Weibun. Weibun is the invest editor of the Straits Times, as well as the supervising editor for ST's publishing business, ST Press, and its executive training programs, the Straits Times Masterclass. Thank you, Weibun, for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. Now, where in the Straits Times did you begin your career as a reporter? Okay, I joined Straits Times in May 1992 after graduating from NUS Law Faculty. I was bonded to the Straits Times because I took his scholarship when I was uh, much, much younger, and that's why I didn't end up practicing law. Well, you can say that I was an accidental journalist. Journalism wasn't my first choice. But then again, I love my job so much that I'm still here after 28 years. I like that, accidental journalist. Okay, so tell us, what beats do you cover at the time? Okay, due to my legal training, I was a natural choice for the law and crime beat. But that said, that was also the choice beat that I opted for because as a kid, I had aspired to be one of those super cops who could solve the most complex cases. Well, I eventually didn't become a police officer, but I guess working with them would be the next best thing. So you spent many years as a reporter covering the law and the crime beat at the Straits Times. So safe to say you covered many cases. Oh yes, I practically covered thousands of cases. I mean, this is not an exaggeration because to date I have actually written six books related to my work. The latest, of course, is the revised edition of my first book, which is on John Martin, the serial killer. I changed the original title from Body Parts to now A British Serial Killer in Singapore because the latest book is an improved version for the international audience. If you'd like to read my book, it's now on sale as ebook at the Amazon Kindle. Only $9.99 US dollar. Nice plug there. Okay. <laughs> So let's turn our attention to the body parts murder case. These are the facts of the case. In 1996, Singapore's first serial killer, John Martin Scripps, is hanged for the violent killing of three tourists just a year earlier. His murders took place in Singapore and Thailand. The case came to be infamously known as the body parts murder. March 13, 1995, the police receive a report of a body part in a black shopping bag floating in the waters off Clifford Pier. It turns out to be a pair of human legs cut off at the knee. March 16th, the police are called out again to Clifford Pier. This time, they discover a pair of human thighs and a torso. The grisly body parts would turn out to be the remains of Mr. Gerard George Lowe, a South African tourist here in Singapore on a shopping trip. He was 32 years old. On March 15th, the killer, John Martin, boards a Thai Airways flight to Phuket after prowling for three days in Bangkok for his next victim. On the flight, he spots his next victim, or sadly, victims. They are mother and son, two Canadians, spending their first holiday in Asia. The mother, Sheila Damoods, was 49 years old and her son, Daniel Damoods, was 23. John Martin befriended the two and they decided to stay in the same hotel. On March the 16th, the very next day, John Martin killed them in their hotel room. So, Ibun, you have a first-hand account of the case in what would turn out to be Singapore's first serial killer. Tell us, how did you get the lead? Well, this case started off very strangely enough. The police found a pair of legs that was bundled into a bag that was floating at the sea not far from today's Marina Bay Sands. Later, when they checked, the legs belonged to a Caucasian man. 
Now, being a primarily Asian society, this was not something that you will stumble on routinely in Singapore. Not long after that, the Straits Times received a fax from South Africa. Okay, this may sound strange, but those days we don't have email, so fax was the thing. That fax arrived on my table and it came from a family who was looking for a Caucasian man who actually went missing while holidaying in Singapore. Now, you have a missing Caucasian tourist and then you found legs belonging to a Caucasian man floating in the sea. Well, you don't need to be a genius to deduce that these two were related. So that's how I landed myself on this story. I went to the police and my hunch was proven correct. So why is this case then categorized as a serial killing? I mean, wasn't uh, the Adrian Tan case, or wasn't he considered a serial killer as well? Well, if you have watched the movie The Silence of the Lamb, which starred Jodie Foster as the FBI agent. Yes, I have. Yeah, if you recall in that movie, that movie was based on the work of a veteran FBI expert called Robert Ressler. He was the man who coined the word serial killers. Serial killers actually refers to killers who have murdered multiple victims in an almost similar manner. So John Martin was classified as a serial killer because he committed the crime in similar manners. He first killed a person with a hammer and then he used a penknife to cut up the body and this method was the same in all three recent victims that he did. As for Adrian Tan, the infamous medium who killed two kids in Topayo, I wouldn't say he was a serial killer simply because he didn't do it like John Martin did. He has a, he has a method to his uh, execution. The media then call him a cult killer because he killed those kidnapped kids as part of a sadistic ritual. Out of greed. I mean, something definitely is wrong with, was wrong with this guy, but the FBI wouldn't term him as a serial killer, which is actually a far more sophisticated, intelligent and dangerous criminal than other killers. Okay, so you broke the story. It's page one news. What's next? It took almost a week before I could file a story after I got the facts. The police then appealed to me to hold the story as they were onto something. Remember, I told them that I knew the legs belonged to this missing Caucasian man. Uh, in a way, they said my, my deduction was correct, but they appealed to me, please don't run the story because we are onto something. Uh, that was actually very, very strange because police would never ask a journalist to stop running a story. But this time, they really made an appeal for me, please don't run this story, we are onto something. And in return for me not running the story, they said that if ever the story can be run, I'll be the first to do it. Uh, at that time, I agreed to the request because, frankly, I didn't have much to go on. And so I agreed. Luckily, I did because what I did not realize was that the police were waiting to catch the killer because the killer had then left Singapore, but he was expected to be back. And true enough, he came back and he was arrested at Changi Airport. The police made good the promise called me the next day after his arrest and I, I had the page one story on the man who killed the tourists in Singapore on the page one. Uh, just as I thought that was the end of the story, another big saga happened. Two more victims, this time round, Canadian tourists were found murdered in Phuket. So John Martin truly turned out to be a serial killer and the story just kept becoming bigger and bigger. Now the first of the body parts that was discovered were the first victim's uh, legs, uh, Mr. Gerard Lowe. And at the time, Professor Chow, Singapore's top forensic pathologist, was on duty when the first body parts were brought to him. His findings was that this was the work of a serial killer. Now, why did Prof Chow come to that conclusion so quickly? Okay, we have to go back to the movie Silence of the Lamb. Right. Who was the famous uh, serial killer in that movie? Hannibal Lecter, right? If you recall, he mentioned that to catch a serial killer, you need to understand one word, simplicity. In short, try to see things from the point of view of the killer in his nature and environment. Just like any other profession, what he is saying is that even killers have to start somewhere and his first kill 
would unlikely to be well done. I mean, this sounds a bit morbid and bizarre, but in this case, the late Professor Chow knew straight away when he looked at those licks that was recovered from the sea, he saw that the cuts were clean. Note that we are talking about chopping up people here, you know, and not animals. Nobody would be able to execute those kind of clean cuts on a human body parts unless you have had practice, right? So that made the person a serial killer because he would have killed somebody else before this latest victim. And also John Martin had with him a set of dangerous weapons that included an electrical stun device, a can of mace, two police brand knives, and a 1.5 kilograms hammer. And that plus two pairs of handcuffs and a pair of thumb cuffs. Now, my question is, how did John Martin manage to get through immigration with all these illegal and dangerous items? Well, now is the year 2020. We kind of forget that sometimes prior to September 11, things were actually much more relaxed. This case happened in 1995. In those days, you could actually check in all sorts of things into the luggage and usually nobody would care. And unless you really look like a gangster, people could just walk out of the airport. John Martin, in this case, was a good-looking fellow. He was charming and soft-spoken. That's why he was able to pass through immigration checkpoints with no problem whatsoever because nobody would have guessed that he was a killer. So who is Simon Davis and John Martin? Okay, this particular case has got two names. Both names were attributed to the same killer. The reason that happened was because John Martin actually had two genuine passports. This sounds bizarre. How could somebody be able to make a government issue you with two passports under different names? One other Simon Davis and the other under his own name. Now, who was Simon Davis? As it turned out, Simon Davis was his cellmate who shared the same cell with him when he was in jail for drug offence. Now, we have to rewind a bit. Before he was a killer, John Martin's profession then was a drug smuggler. Yes, they're talking about some career criminal here. He actually tried smuggling heroin to Singapore before. He even had the audacity to place one kilogram of heroin in a safe deposit box in a bank right in Orchard Road. He was caught in UK because if he were caught here then, he would have naturally been hanged for drug trafficking and the serial killing subsequently wouldn't happen. So in this case, while in jail in UK and sharing the same cell with Simon Davis, one night, presumably, he stole Simon Davis' birth certificate. And when he was out on parole, he used that birth certificate and pretended to be Simon Davis and this enabled him to make a new passport. That's why I say this man was actually very dangerous because he knew what he was doing. He wanted to create another identity, so he stole the birth cert of another person and pretended to that person. So that, in fact, enabled him to have two different passports. Now, John Martin, he could have gotten away scot-free after committing those terrible murders in Singapore and then Thailand, but instead, he chose to return to Singapore on March the 19th. Why? Well, on record, he supposedly had some unfinished business because while in Singapore, he has lost some traveler's checks and he was actually making a claim for new ones and police felt that that was the reason why he would come back. But I think the main reason why he chose to come back was because he wanted to look for someone else to kill. He was familiar with Singapore and because everyone here was so nice and trusting and because it was also very safe, this became the perfect hunting ground for him. I say this because... Before he left Singapore, he was actually scouting around hotels in the Marina Bay area before he, he flew off to, to Bangkok. Now, why would he do that unless he has planned to come back and to kill someone else? And as, you, as we all know, hotels in Marina Bay, most of them are located next to the sea, which will make it easy for him to throw his victims. 
All right, so fast forward now, it's March 19th. It's approximately, say, 9 o'clock because uh, Martin's Thai Airways flight was uh, said to have landed around just after 8 o'clock in the evening. So now he's attempting to re-enter Singapore. And he's, as he's waiting at the immigration counter at Singapore Changi Airport, police alert flashes across the screen of the immigration officer who promptly alerts the control room for help. ASP Gerald Lim is activated and he rushes down to Changi Airport and of course, by then, they've put him in the room for questioning. Now, under Singapore law, a suspect can only be detained at a maximum of 48 hours. So, Ibun, what must the police prove in a court of law? Okay, this was a very complex case involving a very intelligent killer. The police really had their hands full because John Martin refused to even say anything after his arrest. Now, you just imagine the situation where somebody was arrested. When the police searched his belongings, they found two passports with his photograph, genuine passports with his name. So now, who is this guy? He refused to talk. On top of that, they discovered even three other passports with his photograph, but belonging to his three victims, the tourists in, in Singapore and two other tourists in Canada. Because at that time, they wouldn't know that he actually murdered two other fellas in, in uh, Thailand. So you're talking about somebody who is very mysterious, has got no names, and yet at that moment, he refused to talk. So it's virtually hard to actually charge him under murder immediately. So what the police did next was that they charged him under forgery because for sure with the passport, he was known to have tampered with the passports belonging to the victims. And that itself would be a concrete case against forgery. And that's what the police went with first. So this would be the next day, right? 20th March. Now, you mentioned in your book as well that you were a bit surprised with the rest of the reporters that the first charge they brought up were forgery charges. Correct. In fact, I still remember on the charge sheet, they couldn't even name the suspect on the charge sheet. They said that this person who allegedly believed to be Simon Davis, because that was the name that the police was familiar with, because Martin has used that name while he was in Singapore. They didn't even say that this was him. He said believed to be. That was very, very unusual because you're talking about a person with two identities. And at that point in time, we didn't know that the other identity exists. So, as we, I mentioned earlier, in order for the police to proceed against a killer, all you need is just a murder charge. But because here he's one man who simply refused to talk, the police had their hands tied. So as things were very happening really very quickly, and since they only have the case in Singapore, and even so, they could not even establish that the, the legs belong to this other man who died because they have to wait for the DNA to arrive to, from South Africa. Right. They have to proceed with other charges so that Martin can continue to be held in the lockups and they can continue to process the case because the murder charge was still not forthcoming. Right. So on March 24th, a few days later, John Martin is once again brought back to the subcourts and this time he's charged with the murder of Mr. Lowe. On April 24th, a month later, more forgery charges were brought up against him. A week later, he was in court again to face five more charges. Now, could you explain to us the process of bringing him in several times and each time fresh charges are brought up? Why not do it all at one go? All this actually, although it, it seems like a long time, mm. for the police, every single charge requires a lot of man hours. You know, So they were going step by step. And the reason why they have to bring so many charges was that just in case they couldn't prove the murder charge, at least they would lock up this man for a long, long time. And that's why... Normally, for a 
suspect who has been accused of committing multiple crimes, the police will not rest until they make sure that every single one of the charges has been tendered up to court so that just in case that if they couldn't prove one, we have many others that can proceed. So on that note, on April the 6th, ASP Gerald Lim and two other officers, they fly to London. Their purpose was to have blood and forensic samples from Lowe tested by the Weatherby Forensic Science Laboratory in West Yorkshire. Now, DNA evidence was sent to Scotland Yard. What was the purpose of this? Okay, back in the 1990s, the Singapore's crime lab were in the early years of transformation. To ensure that all results were up to international standards, it is quite common for forensic scientists here to seek the help of fellow scientists elsewhere to reconfirm the test so that the end result will be 100% accurate. But right now, if the same case were to happen here, I don't think we need to send the samples for overseas testing anymore because I, I would imagine that our CSI team right now today is very capable and sophisticated and they could actually confirm the test right here in Singapore without the need of sending them overseas. So at that time, ASP Lim also sought help from Scotland Yard on the background of John Martin. What did they find out about him? Okay, here we are dealing with an uncooperative murder suspect. He refused to talk. But in order to dig background on him, Naturally, the police have to go back to UK and they spoke to Scotland Yard to find out who was this man. From the checks, they found out about his past deeds, the drug trafficking charges. They also found out that while in prison there, he was put in charge of the butchery section. Okay, this part is actually groundbreaking for the Singapore police because they were trying to find out who had the skill to actually cut up a human body in this manner. As it turned out, while he was in UK, John Martin was actually put in charge of the section and he was responsible for cutting up the entire cattle to prepare the meat so that the, those meat can be made into meals for hundreds of people. So you can imagine he had the whole day busy cutting up meat in the prison, even though he was doing it in the capacity of a chef. But this was the turning point of the case. We knew then that John Martin was trained to be an expert with the use of knives. I think no one else would be able to cut up a human body by using a small knife in just 30 minutes. You have to have lots of training before you can do that. And this was who John Martin was. All right, so let's move on to the trial. On October the 2nd, seven months from the time he committed his first murder, John Martin was then trial. Now, have there been other cases that have been brought to trial so quickly? I must say that the John Martin case was an exceptional case and it probably remained the gold standard for the Singapore justice system. I guess the reason why the case could put up and go for trial in so short a time was because it involved five countries, Singapore, Thailand, South Africa, UK, Canada. It was really given a high priority that. That said, I would say that most cases here would usually reach the trial stage very fast, usually within a year. I think it's fair to assume that in Singapore, only the judges work faster than lawyers. Because in other countries, lawyers probably have to chase after the judges. But here, it's the other way around. Okay, so it's noted that as the, at the uh, preliminary inquiry in September, John Martin would not be tried for the murder of the Canadian mother and son. Could you tell us why? Okay, as the charge of murder already carries the death penalty, you don't really need a second charge to, him, to hang the same murderer twice. In this case, the two Canadian tourists were actually murdered in Thailand. So only the Thai courts has jurisdiction to hear those cases. That said, in Singapore, evidence relating to the murders in Thailand was used as well in what was termed as similar fact evidence. And this was used to convict Martin. This was actually a landmark case for Singapore because for the first time, the court has convicted a criminal for serial killings by using such evidence. And what is this evidence? The evidence shows that all three victims were killed in the same manner 
a blow in the head with a hammer, and that their bodies were cut up in similar manners. Only the same killer could have achieved such similarities. Now, the trial was also heard in the technology court. What is special about this courtroom? Okay, remember this was back in the year 1995. Uh, what was high-tech then would seem normal like right now. Uh, John Martin's case was the first to be heard in the technology court. Evidence was recorded and videoed and everything was put on screen. Uh, what it helped then was that this actually sped up the court process considerably, almost like what you see in the movies where the judge will ask questions, the accused will give their testimony and lawyer will just ask questions and so on and so forth so that the audience can appreciate the, the speed. But in a real-life courtroom, the judge will actually have to pause everybody down because he has to write down the testimony himself manually. So with the technology court, there was no need for the judge to do that and the process was actually able to complete very smoothly, just like what, like I said, what you see in the movies. So what were shown exactly on the screens? Okay, let's just say that if there was a rating for the evidence, it should be rated R21 because among the items that were shown on the screen was autopsy pictures of the human body parts. Mm. We're not talking about parts from animal, but really cut up bodies from a human being and forensic experts were referring to these pictures to show everybody how the killer did, the, did so expertly. So it wasn't just a flash on the screen and then quickly removed before the audience got terrified. The pictures stay on screen for sometimes 10-15 minutes as the expert slowly described the various part that was cut up. So that is actually quite an eye-opener for anybody in the court. So describe for us then the scene in the courtroom, the general mood and sentiment. Okay, uh, I haven't been back to the Supreme Court's technology court now, but I would imagine the current court would be quite spacious. But back in those days, it was a rather small courtroom. People had to queue to enter because they had limited seats for the public. It's really much smaller than the courtrooms that you see in the movies. John Martin was placed in the dock that was shielded by thick glass. And he was just seated right behind me and other journalists covering the case. But we were very assured then because next to him were two muscular elite prison officers who sat throughout with him during the entire trial. Their role there was to make sure that the prisoner would not create any trouble in the middle of a trial. So John Martin took the stand. And when he did, he gave quite an amazing story, something about his British friend. Could you tell us more about that? Okay, I said earlier that serial killers are supposed to be very dangerous because most of them are quite smart. To his credit, Martin gave a totally unexpected defense. He claimed that he was in the company of a friend from the UK, therefore British friend, and this friend was supposed to be an assassin of sorts and master drug lord. The reason why he said this was he steadfastly refused to disclose the identity of this man, saying that if he did, the man would kill his entire family. So this guy is really a mysterious, dangerous criminal himself. Okay, in Singapore, John Martin did not deny killing the tourists while he was in the hotel room, but he said it was done in self-defense because the man he claimed was a homosexual who tried to attack him while they were in the same room. So in the process of defending himself, he accidentally killed the man with a hammer. And it was a British friend who came to the room subsequently, and it was a British friend who cut up the bodies and threw at the sea. On the face of it, this sounds probable, but the story become ridiculous when he tried to actually pin the murders of the Canadian tourists on this British friend as well. Because you just imagine, why would the world would the British friend kill a mother and son for no good reason in Bangkok or rather in Phuket? So in this case, that's when the story fell apart. It also explains why he wanted to, he kept silent, right, all that time. 
Correct. Maybe because he was just dreaming this whole hoax up. Yeah, actually, he has the potential of becoming a very good movie scriptwriter. <laughs> okay, so at this point now, it's a real wrench in the works. This mysterious British friend has appeared in his uh, testimony. So now, what did the Singapore police have to prove, or rather have to do, to prove that this mysterious British friend of John Martin was all a lie? Okay, it was very clear to everyone in court that the friend did not exist. But you can't just say, no, you don't exist. The police have to actually show with real evidence. While John Martin can just pluck her story out of thin air, the police have to show with real evidence. So there were two critical aha moments in court. Evidence number one, Martin claimed that he went to hide in his friend's hotel in Sentosa on the next day after the killing of the tourists in Singapore. But on that same day and, and time, the police was able to produce a receipt at his own hotel, which he himself had signed. It was a restaurant receipt which proved that he was having a dinner then in Riverview Hotel. The receipt would prove conclusively that he could not have been in Sentosa. Again, for the second evidence, Martin claimed that after his stay in the Sentosa, his friend actually checked out the hotel and went to stay in another hotel in Marina Square. I would say this is where the gold standard contact tracing ability of Singapore comes into play. The police then had to check all hotel registers of hotels in Sentosa as well as hotels in Marino Square. And the purpose is trying to find a man with the same name on any of these hotel registers. So if this British friend really exists, his name would feature in the hotel register of a hotel in Sentosa and his name would reappear again in the hotel in Marino Square. But because the police could not find such a similarity, this gave a strong case that the man did not exist. But one of these British friends had used different names. Okay, this was actually put forth by Marty himself. Yes, he said the friend could have used another name when he checked the hotels. But then again, what is the possibility of somebody who is actually not wanted by the police then? Why would somebody like that use two different names? Because let us not forget, Martin has got two passports with two different names. One under Simon Davis Jones, the other under John Martin. Martin himself did not use the name interchangeably. And while in Singapore, he consistently only used one name, which is Simon Davis. So why would the friend then use different names when he himself didn't? What was his demeanor like throughout the trial, aside from, you know, losing a lot of weight? He was actually very calm and eerily quiet throughout. It's actually no wonder why people fell for his rules, because many people would be mistaken and think that he was actually a very harmless and soft-spoken man. Now on page 174 of your book, uh, and I quote, you said the DPP was flabbergasted. So it sounds to me she suddenly had to keep a cool head. So tell us more about the Deputy Public Prosecutor Jennifer Marie. In your book, you had observed in court that the prosecution asked questions in a chaotic fashion. Why? You see, the DPP was actually a no-nonsense prosecutor. There were many dramatic moments where he caught Martin lying, such as when he produced the restaurant's receipts. It was really like in the movies, he was leading Martin round in circles by asking various questions again and again at different times. This was a tactic that was meant to show that he was lying because a liar would have trouble being consistent in his answers while a person telling the truth would say the same things despite being asked numerous times. The DPP was flabbergasted because there are times that Martin himself was confused and he blamed the DPP for asking him all these tricks questions when he himself was the one inventing the story all along. Now, we move on to the verdict. In delivering his verdict, Justin Senaturi said, and I quote, though it was submitted by defence lawyer Edmund Pereira that the Thai evidence was prejudicial to Martin, in the present case, 
I'm of the view that the probative value of this evidence far outweighs its prejudicial effect. What does that last line mean again? Okay, the judge was actually referring to the similar fact evidence. This case was the first time where circumstantial evidence was used to convict a killer. So what does that mean? For example, let's use an analogy of a video. Uh, this man killed somebody in a particular manner in Singapore. But unfortunately, I don't have the video of him doing that in Singapore. But then again, I have a video showing him killing somebody else in Thailand in the same manner. So that video from Thailand actually became very relevant to prove the killing in Singapore because it showed that only him are capable of using this particular method to kill his victim. So therefore, the evidence from Thailand was conclusive enough to prove that Martin also committed a crime in Singapore. That was what the similar fact evidence referred to because you are using the fact that he killed somebody else in another country to prove that he also did the same case here. So did John Martin appeal against his conviction? He did initially, but he withdrew it later uh, for reasons unknown. Perhaps he thought that it was futile for him to appeal because uh, there were the evidence against him was really, really uh, mounting and it was quite hard for him to refute any of it. So there was another victim before Mr. Lowe that Scotland Yard believed was murdered by John Martin. Can you shed some light on that for us? Okay, as the forensic expert correctly noted, the case in Singapore was not his first case. Martin was believed to have killed a fellow British tourist while he was in South, uh, South American state of Belize. This case was not solved because in that case, no body was found. I mean, there wasn't a cop, there wasn't body parts. Martin was believed to have killed a man and then threw the body into a crocodile-infested river there. So as a result, nobody could find any parts. The man was reported missing, but how did Scotland Yard link him to John Martin? They found out that Martin was probably responsible for his death because apparently Martin transferred a lot of money from the dead man's account to his own account. You wouldn't have that unless Martin was somehow responsible for his disappearance. This case actually was not resolved because Martin steadfastly refused to talk to Scotland Yard officer. They visited him. He refused to meet with the Scotland Yard police. In your book, you also mentioned two other gentlemen who narrowly escaped death. Could you tell us more about that? Okay. After John Martin was arrested, the police found a lot of things on him. Among the items recovered was a credit card belonging to another man. Initially, police feared for the worst because every name or victim's item that were found with him, that victim was ended up dead. But in this instance, the credit card belonged to this man and this man was fortunate enough to be still alive. And when police contacted him, he said he has lost his card, he had reported the card stolen, but Martin did not manage to get to him. I suspect that it was because of this incident that Martin decided to kill his victims because he realized that if I stole somebody's card, I could use it for a while. But if the person reported to the police, the card becomes useless. So he thought of this plan. Maybe if I steal the card from the next guy, I would silence him by killing him. So this man was actually lucky because he escaped. As for the second man, after Martin landed in Singapore, he actually managed to approach somebody in Changi Airport. He offered himself as a travel companion to that particular man. Thankfully, that man declined. And as a result, he escaped death. So that's how... Martin found another victim in the other tourist. And how do we know that he had, Martin had actually approached another person? Because after the case was reported in the, in the Straits Times and all, this man actually called up the Singapore police to say, hey, I remember this person, he approached me in Changi Airport, but thankfully I didn't say yes to him. The police actually wanted 
to him to testify to show that Martin deliberately was scouting for victims. But this man, I think, for privacy reasons, he declined to come forward to testify. But his story is actually a very good lesson to all of us that we should be exceptionally very, very nice strangers approach us while we were traveling overseas. So in your years of uh, reporting on law and crime, Uyibun, tell us, why then do killers kill? In many cases which I've come across, it's sad to say that the motive is usually centered around money or over women. The reason why I said women was because most killers are men. Women, women killers are actually in the minority. Mm. So in the case of John Martin, he was actually killing tourists because to him, tourists would have lots of money on them because most people, when they travel, they bring substantial amount so that they could go shopping and also they have lots of credit cards. So in Martin's mind, he killed, in this case, not because of women, but he killed because of money because a dead person would not be able to report that their credit cards were stolen. So if he had picked the right victims, he could possibly have many cards and that means possibly hundreds of thousand dollars for him to use. On that point, I mean, picking tourists was also instead of versus picking locals. Because as a tourist, when you're traveling, your family don't expect you to call them every day. So That's they correct. Not, yeah, they would not have realized anything was amiss, right? Whereas a local doesn't show up, your, your family member doesn't show up in 24 hours you would suspect very quickly something might be wrong. You actually touch on a very good point. Here we have a dangerous man roaming around the streets in Singapore. He spoke to many Singaporeans in the hotel, in the streets, while he was shopping. In fact, one salesman actually went to look for Martin in his room. He stayed in his room and talked to him for 30 minutes, but nothing happened to him yeah. because Martin was very, very clear. If he had killed a Singaporean and somebody reported that Singaporean missing, his deed would be exposed in a matter of hours, if not days. So Martin was very, very clear. He only wanted to choose foreigners because nobody knew that the foreigner was in Singapore because nobody would actually go and look, deliberately look for missing persons or whatever. You know. So you are absolutely right. That's why Martin chose only tourists because nobody would expect the, the person to be missing because after all, you're supposed to be on holiday. So Wibun, do you still think about this case? Oh, yes. In fact, this was the case that made me be on my guard every time when I travel. And I am particularly paranoid and try not to talk to strange people, especially good-looking ones, charming ones, because that's how Martin hit his victims. So do you think technology has created a more dangerous criminal? Yes and no. Technology has created a new breed of cyber criminals, but I would not say that technology has made men more dangerous. Men are already dangerous by themselves, but thanks to technology, such as having CCTVs all over the place, the number of serial killings worldwide has actually dropped. It's not that easy to get away anymore so long as a murder is reported these days. Police have the CCTV as their most powerful weapons which allow them to see and track potential criminals. For instance, thanks to technology, the police were able to solve the recent stabbing case in Pungo in record time. Had such CCTVs been installed then, there was no way Martin could spin a story on his British friend because the friend, if it existed, would have been captured on CCTV. Well, this whole case has definitely been a food for thought for me the next time I travel. So before we say goodbye, Weibun, where can our listeners get a copy of your book? Tell us again. Well, uh, you can find the copy of my ebook on the Amazon Kindle. It's only there for US $9.99. Just click buy and you can enjoy the whole story. Deepest, darkest secrets of serial killer and also how you can be assured why Singapore is such a safe city because our police officers are really, really very good. I've been speaking with Mr. Tan Uyibun, Invest Editor of The Straits Times. 
supervising editor for ST's publishing business, ST Press, and its executive training programs, the Streets Times Masterclass. Uibun, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. True Crime is a production of SPH Radio. It's hosted and produced by Loretta Lopez. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Podcast, and streaming on Google Home.